This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 332nd episode, we have a bunch of news, including a new hadrosaur. And I think I saw you have quite a list of new events and things going on. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff happening in dinosaur world. <laughs> there's a lot building up, I guess. We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Micropachycephalosaurus, which now looking at it is definitely one of the longer dinosaur names that I've seen. Might be the longest one. It's, a, it's quite a string there. And I only say might be, it probably is, but I can't off the top of my head list all the dinosaur names. So I don't know. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure. It's until somebody finds an earlier one that becomes pro-micro-pachycephalosaurus or something like that. Mm. <laughs> and we also have a fun fact, which I went way overboard with. It could easily be an entire article, like BuzzFeed style, because it's basically five ways to de-extinct a species. It was originally just going to be one way. And then when I started looking into it, I kept finding more and more ways that you can de-extinct a species. Oh. So I, I just had to go through the whole thing because it's such an interesting topic. You going to write it as a BuzzFeed article? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know how that works, but if I guess if I can. <laughs> Maybe it'll just be an inodino.com article. But anyway, before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons as always because they are the driving force behind Inodino, the people that keep our bits streaming and all of that good stuff. So this week, we'd like to thank Cameron, Richard, Wyatt, Daniel McGill, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, Gabe, Greg, Verociraptor, John Heck, and Vikram and Karthik. Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate your support and being part of our community, and we hope that you are enjoying the perks. And if you want to get in on some of those perks, then go to our page at patreon.com slash I know Dino. You can join our dinosaur enthusiast community. Yes, indeedy. So jumping into the news, like we usually do, I'm going to kick it off with a new dinosaur. This one was described by our friends at the Western Science Center. Nice. In Hemet, California. Which is a fun museum to visit. We got to tour it a few years ago and see, of course, Max, the mastodon, but they also have dinosaurs there. Yeah, more and more dinosaurs all the time. I should mention, too, this article was written by Andrew McDonald and others and published in Pure J, which is open access. Always a highlight of a good dinosaur paper when it's in open access. So uh, this new dinosaur is a Sorolophene hadrosaur, which is the group that includes Edmontosaurus and other hadrosaurs without the big crests. Basically, not a Lambiosaur. If it's not a Lambiosaur, it's probably a Sorolophene. The new dinosaur is named Ornatops. Incantatus. Hmm. 
and ornatops means ornate face in a half Latin, half Greek, typical sort of dinosaur name. So it's got some ornamentation. It does, despite being a sorolophene, but definitely not nearly as much ornamentation as something like a parasaurolophus in Lambiosaurid. And then the species name, Incantatus, or Incantatus, it's hard for me to suppress my Wisconsinite making the A's that, yeah, anyway, <laughs> is Latin for enchanted since it's from New Mexico, also known as the land of enchantment. Ooh, how magical. Yeah, so it's the enchanted ornate face. Like other Western science center named dinosaurs. It's from the Menifee Formation, which is the same as Dynamo Terror and Invictarx, which we've talked about recently. Mm -hmm. And like those, it's about roughly 80 million years old. So a lot newer than some of the stuff we talk about in New Mexico, because they have some Triassic coelophysis and things like that. Mm -hmm. And since it was about 80 million years ago, that means the Western Interior Seaway was there. So it was very much on Laramidia and separated from Eastern North America as well. They found a decent amount of the animal, including a fair amount of the head, especially near the back of the head. So not a lot of like the snout, but sort of the back of the head. They got the partial right premaxilla, and it's, it's not really down by the teeth. Unfortunately, they didn't find any teeth. But they did find the right post-orbital, the right squamosal, both of the quadrates, which are sort of like the back jaw type area, and then a nearly complete skull roof and brain case. That's a lot. Yeah. So the, that skull roof brain case area is really what the paper's about. They said we're basically going to have a paper later to describe the postcranial stuff, which in hadrosaurs is usually not all that diagnostic. It's usually the heads where, the, where all the details and the exciting stuff is. Especially if it's got ornamentation. Yeah, exactly. But just for completeness, the other stuff that they did find, which will be described later, I guess, is a couple of vertebrae, a rib, some ossified tendons, shoulder blade, partial humerus ulna and radius, so that four leg or maybe arm, depending on if it's quadrupedal or bipedal, a couple metacarpals or hand bones, and some partial hip bones as well, which means there was much more of ornatops found than there was of either Dynamoterra or Invictarx, which mm -hmm. is why I was saying I think it's their best dinosaur find so far. Unfortunately, though, we are missing the leg and foot bones, which tell a lot about the way the animal walked, potentially, like how fast it is. A lot of times it's whether or not it has that arctometatarsal or, you know, the length of the femur to tibia ratios and all these kinds of things. And it can also tell you how much it weighed. So mm. we don't have that. The humerus sometimes can be used for that sort of stuff if it's very quadrupedal, but they didn't really talk about it. Fortunately, though, you can learn a lot from the brain case. In this case, it's a little bit deformed, but otherwise it's in good shape. They actually uploaded a scan of the brain case to Sketchfab, which is a website with lots of 3D models on it, and I was looking at the brain case, and immediately the first thing you notice is that it's definitely squished. <laughs> so one half of it is kind of mushed up, so it's, it's very asymmetrical, but it's in pretty good shape, so it's kind of easy to see how it's squished. It doesn't, it's not, yeah, it's sort of like squished around that midline sort of, so like the right side is squished. Up. So you can tell how it should have looked if yeah. it wasn't squished. Yeah, I think so. I think, and they were saying they could still see a lot of details that they wanted to see in it. The, the deformation wasn't too much of a problem for it. 
One of the details they could tell is that it's from an adult or a near adult because the brain case changes and, you know, fuses. Like we talk about a lot with adults, they tend to fuse, the bones tend to fuse over time. So that's the case with this brain case. So we think, you know, it was probably nearly fully grown. Not sure how big it was, though. They didn't hazard a guess on that. And you can also tell from that brain case that it has a lot in common with Brachylophosaurus and Probrachylophosaurus. Also two long dinosaur names, but still not <laughs> quite as long as Micropachycephalosaurus. That's true. And an interesting thing about this one and how it fits with Probrachylophosaurus and Brachylophosaurus is obviously Brachylophosaurus was found first, and then they found Probrachylophosaurus from an older formation. And they're like, oh, this is a lot like Brachylophosaurus, but it's earlier and it, it looks like a little bit less derived. So maybe Brachylophosaurus evolved from Probrachylophosaurus. But Ornithops, which is a lot easier to say, fits kind of in between the two. So now it looks, if you had to, if you were assuming that they did evolve from each other, it would be Probrachylophosaurus, Ornithops, then Brachylophosaurus. So maybe they should have named it like Mid-Brachylophosaurus. That doesn't sound as good. <laughs> no, I, I like Ornithops better too. And the, the star feature, I would call it, of Ornithops is the large nasofrontal suture that covers most of the frontal. So basically the place where the frontal and the nasal connect, but also where there would have been presumably a little bit of a crest growing up out of the head. And that's the orna ornament of ornithops. Mm. Yeah, so like I said, with those Brachylophosaurus and Probrachylophosaurus relatives, that puts it in Brachylophosauri, which is a group that also includes Myasauri. So you can think of those three plus ornithops to make four as a pretty cohesive group. Those are at least the three closest relatives, I think. And then some other sources include one or two other Brachylophosaurs in eyes. So when you're thinking of what the body looks like, you can get an idea based on these other three dinosaurs. Yes, definitely. And really in hadrosaurs, there isn't generally that much of a difference. <laughs> you have to kind of go a little ways out in the family tree. Within the groups, they tend to be pretty similar looking. But in general, the Brachylophosaurians have a paddle-shaped nasal crest. So it sort of looks like, I don't know, I guess if when you're playing that game heads up and you hold the card to your forehead, I'd say that's basically what it looks like. <laughs> sort of that scale relative to its head, just like a little I've card. never played that game. Where you hold a, a card or you actually, I think they played it on The Office once where they had like a headband on. Oh, and, and you have to like, guess who you are. Yeah. So you ask people questions like what's on my forehead, sort of 20 question style mm -hmm, or something. I see. It's basically like that. Like if you taped a card to its forehead, it has like a little bit of, it's a little bit more like seashell shaped, a little more curved on the top. It looks a little fan shaped to me. Yeah. But it's sort of the same scale as a card, mm -hmm. I would say. Although we don't know the exact size or shape of Ornithops crest because they didn't find it, but they can tell by that nasofrontal suture that there probably was a crest there and also because of the relatives and all that kind of stuff. So pretty sure there was something there. We don't know exactly what it was. It probably wasn't some huge impressive structure, probably something relatively small, but would have been enough to excite the other Ornithops <laughs> that were around, I'm sure. And definitely enough for species identification. Were you looking at that piece of paleo art by Brian Eng when you were saying what it looks like? Yeah, I thought I recognized his style. It is, I mean, yes, but there is no 
nothing's getting eaten or decaying or it doesn't have that general metal quality <laughs> to oh, eggs art that I'm used to. It looks pretty peaceful and, you know, pleasant. But the general style and the colors and the texture and everything. Yeah, that's true. It is a nice piece. You, mm -hmm. you can see the little head crest it's got on it. He gave it little little mini spikes sort of running down its head and back like we know some hadrosaurs had. So it's pretty cool. And one of the coolest things about it is in addition to the paleo art, they also scanned all the fossils and put them online using both laser scanning and photogrammetry. Oh. So double the digitizing. It is. We were talking about how photogrammetry seems to be a little bit better. I think that's the one that was up on Sketchfab. But, you know, why not do both? Yeah, if you can. <laughs> exactly. I should also mention the Western Science Center is working on a new exhibit, which is going to include Ornatops, Dynamoterror, and Invictarx. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. When we were there, they had a little tiny sort of side room that had a little bit of dinosaur stuff in it. I think there was like a recreated T-Rex head, if I remember right, and some details about it. But now that they've been doing a bunch of work in the Menifee Formation, they're going to have to expand that. They told us they were going to do it, too. Yeah. Because they'd said there were a lot of dinosaur things in the works. Yeah. This was a few years ago. Yeah, I'm excited to see how they display all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then moving on, Garrett said he basically created an article of five ways things go extinct. They go de-extinct. They go de-extinct. <laughs> Apologies. Fizz.org had an article about how to hunt for fossils responsibly in that vein of like, this is what the things you should do. Mm -hmm. Anyway. So they talk about why amateur fossil hunters need to be responsible. And some of that is preventing misidentification of bones or, you know, preventing fossils from breaking while being excavated, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So some tips on how to be responsible include making sure you have permission to collect the fossils and also stay safe. Always bring a friend. And know your basic first aid and also how to contact emergency services if you need them. Also wear sunscreen. Yeah, being able to contact emergency services, I guess, could require some additional hardware because sometimes where you're looking for fossils, they don't have cell signal. But they have those cool like emergency buttons you can press. Mm -hmm. I think my sister used one of those hiking in the Grand Canyon or maybe her friend did where like if you get stuck, you can press this button and like a helicopter will come pick oh, wow. you up like... We're living in the future. It's like satellite-based. It's very fancy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, also, bring equipment with you. So, for example, if you're looking for fossils in sand dunes, you'll want some paintbrushes. Mm. And then also show restraint in collecting and leaving some fossils for other people. And be a citizen scientist. So, have a notebook with you. Write down where you found the fossil and details about where it came from. And then take photos before and after excavating. Yeah, I was going to say, taking notes is good, but I think taking pictures is better. Especially with like modern cameras, especially on smartphones, you know, they have GPS coordinates built into them a lot of times. Mm -hmm. So that make it a lot easier to refine later. Yeah. But sometimes it's helpful to have notes to go with it. Too. True. Yeah. And if you think you found something really good, then get in touch with a local museum and then more people can learn from your find. Yeah, for maybe, sure. Yeah. Maybe it's a really big deal. I don't know. And we should probably point out, I'm, I know that it was included in your first comment about make sure that you're allowed to dig in that place and that you're in the right place but in a lot of places that are famous for dinosaur fossils you're not allowed to dig like any sort of federal land and stuff you need permits for it in the u.s yeah well in in other countries sometimes you're not allowed to do it even with a permit like you just can't get one mm -hmm. unless you're associated with a museum or something so i would say 
potentially the best way to do it is to volunteer and go on a dig with other people. And then you know you're not messing anything up. <laughs> and you're likely to be directed to a site where you're actually digging up a fossil and not just confusing some rock or something. Yeah. And if you're in a group of volunteers, too, they'll train you on how to make sure that you collect in a way that no data is lost, too. Mm -hmm. So speaking of volunteering for digs, the Virginia Museum of Natural History and the University of Lynchburg is having a dinosaur dig in Wyoming this summer, and they're looking for volunteers. Nice. There you go. That's the place to go. That is the place <laughs> to go. So the dig's going to happen between June 26th until July 19th. And if you go, they'll teach you how to hunt for fossils, collect data, just like we we're saying, and then how to analyze and report on the data. You do have to pay to participate, but food and lodging and supplies will be included. Nice. Yeah, so just one example of places you can volunteer. Yeah, we keep hearing about more and more of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think more places are opening up this summer, too. Yeah. Digging up dinosaur fossils takes a fair amount of man and woman person power to get <laughs> these fossils out. And, you know, you want to take it slow. So if you have a lot of people going slow, it's better than a few people trying to go fast. Mm-hmm. So going into museum news, in Ithaca, New York, the Museum of Earth has a new exhibit called Daring to Dig, Women in American Paleontology. And the exhibit's open until this fall, and it teaches people about women working in paleontology from the 1600s to modern day, which is a pretty good span. I didn't realize there were women working in paleontology in the 1600s. Yeah, that's, that's cool. The earliest one I can think of is Franz Nopsha's sister. Right. I was thinking Mary Mantell, Gideon Mantell's wife. Oh, yeah. But also Mary Anning. So around the 1800s. So the earliest true. I could think of. Yeah. I wonder who's in the 1600s. Well, they made an online version of the exhibit, which has a lot of videos and images to accompany all the stories and teachings. And I glanced at it, but I didn't specifically look for women from the 1600s, but they probably have something there. I guess we're really dinosaur biased. <laughs> so right. the first dinosaur female paleontologists were maybe in the 1800s, but there's probably somebody looking at like mammals or human fish. stuff or yeah, fish or something from the 1600s. Yeah. So the goal of the exhibit is to inspire girls and women to get involved in STEAM and, you know, explore the lives of these women paleontologists and learn about their accomplishments. And it sounds like they reached out to a lot of modern women paleontologists, people working in the field or working in the industry today and getting their stories too, which is cool. Yeah, there's certainly more and more every year. So that is good. Yeah. Speaking of Mary Anning, because she comes up a lot, there's another film. <laughs> She's really? Yeah. It's a short film called Sea Dragon. It's going to premiere at the Cleveland International Film Festival in April. It's streaming this year, so it's easier for people to be a part of mm -hmm. you do still have to buy tickets and i guess they've limited tickets as they would have had this been in person but the film is about when mary anning discovered the first ichthyosaur skeleton it's 17 minutes long and as of this recording there's still tickets available if you wanted to stream it gotcha i don't i it's hard for me to get excited about streaming in the same like trying to recreate a live experience i don't know just it's not the same as going to like a live screening. That's true. But I guess when you limit the access, it feels more exclusive or something. Yeah. 
Maybe, I guess if they had like a live Q&A afterwards or something that made it more like a They didn't specify. Event. Maybe they do for some of the films. I didn't really look past the Mary Anning film in the film festival. <laughs> in Stoneham, Massachusetts, Stone Zoo's getting a T-Rex adventure exhibit starting April 16th and going until September 6th. And if you visit, you can see animatronic dinosaurs and realistic dinosaur skeletons. There's a T-Rex, of course, but also there's Platyosaurus, and then based on the pictures, looks like an Ankylosaurus, so it could be a fun outdoor activity if you're in the area. I'm not. I'm really far away from Massachusetts. Yeah, I'm talking to our listeners <laughs> who are closer. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> We've also got an item in Watkinsville, Georgia, which Garrett is also not nearby, <laughs> where you can see a dinosaur sculpture known as T-Bone. This is in the Hickory Hills neighborhood. It's one of those sculptures made out of recycled metal. It was made in 1996. And it used to live in an artist's home. Now it's in a woman named Tina Huff's front yard. It's meant to be seen. There you go. There's people putting dinosaur sculptures in their front yard. Mm -hmm. It's good for them. <laughs> good for them, not for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have other dinosaur things. Yeah, they're all inside the house, though. Yeah. That's fine. People driving by have no idea how much we love dinosaurs. It's okay. Then it's a nice surprise if they come inside. I mean, I don't think anybody who's been inside our house is surprised that we know that we like dinosaurs. True. But they might be surprised <laughs> at all the dinosaur things we have. Yeah, they might be. But we talk about dinosaurs a lot, so <laughs> probably not. That's true. <laughs> Uh, another fun item, I recently learned about the Canadian Encyclopedia, hmm. where you can search for dinosaur, and then there's a lot of cool entries that come up. There's like an interactive map of dinosaur fossils in Canada. There's articles about different bone beds and excavations and museums, and then, of course, there's an article all about Phil Curry. Cool. That's nice that they have the different bone beds. Sometimes that stuff is a little tricky to find. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, Canada is full of dinosaur fossils and dinosaur things. So it makes sense it would be in some kind of encyclopedia. Yeah. It's nice that it's all in one place. In game news, you mentioned earlier about Fortnite maybe having dinosaurs, and now it has the dinosaurs. There's a recent patch, so now there's raptors roaming the game. I've seen a lot of comments, though. People are disappointed with how the raptors look because they look pretty unrealistic. Hmm. I mean, they've got feathers, but the teeth are wrong. There's a lot of things that are not quite right. There are a lot of details, yeah. They look like a kind of typical, almost like if you make one out of Lego, what it would look like. Mm. <laughs> Very angular. Its arms are like, they look like they could be Lego arms. <laughs> you know, just like weird bent. And yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of a funny looking creature. Yeah. But I, I don't, I haven't played Fortnite, so I don't know what the other creatures look like and maybe it's in theme that's cool though that they're they're roaming around mm -hmm. yeah they spawn at random and then they must attack people since that's the name of the game with fortnite <laughs> <laughs> yep there's something about they hatched out of giant eggs across the island i haven't found too much additional info yet but i wonder if they'll add more types of dinosaurs in the future are you thinking sauropods yeah, or it could be more carnivorous dinosaurs attacking people, I don't know. Yeah, that does seem like the main thing that fits in with first-person shooter-style video games. Actually, I'm not sure if Fortnite is first-person. might be third-person. So going from fighting games to really cute dinosaurs. 
<laughs> I mean, they're not realistic, but they're adorable. There's this new anime series coming out in April called Dinosaur Biori, and it's about three dinosaurs who all live in an apartment together. <laughs> You've got Tyrannosaurus, Triceratops, and Stenonicosaurus, which is a troodontid. That's a, they go with Triceratops, Tyrannosaurus, and then an obscure troodontid. That's a really interesting choice. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea how they chose. They all live in a one-room, one-bedroom apartment, and then they work at part-time gigs, and they eat sweets together. That's the description of the show. And other animals that are going to appear in the series include an Alamosaurus, Quetzalcoatlus, and Ankylosaurus. No idea how they're going to interact. It's very interesting. But the characters are really cute. Like the Tyrannosaurus is this pink thing. I think they might have already made plushies for it because there's pictures of the people who work on the show holding these plushies. Hmm. <laughs> it looks a lot like the pictures I saw of the illustrations. So they look pretty friendly, friendly dinosaurs. Interesting. Yeah, you definitely have to friendly them up to make it seem like a Tyrannosaurus and a Triceratops and a Stenonicosaurus are going to be friends. Yeah, well, Tyrannosaurus and Triceratops especially. Yeah, right. Famously chewing on each other slash stabbing with horns. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I mean, they're also living in an apartment. Yes. And working and eating sweets, all things they couldn't do. Very civilized. Mm -hmm. Yes. I don't know where exactly you can watch. I hope it's going to be available in the U.S. soon, though. So you said it's a Japanese show? or Yeah, it's anime. But do we know what it's streaming on or like where it's being made? I know no details other than the name. Dinosaur Biori. Yeah, it's definitely Japanese. I found a picture of the promotional thing and it's got Japanese text on it. Yeah, well, all the voice actors are Japanese actors as well. Okay. So maybe we'll get like a subtitled or overdubbed version, something somewhere. That'd be good. Hopefully. And then last in Plymouth, England, the woman who started the inflatable dinosaur trend and the Facebook group, Dawn Lapthorne, who we've talked about before, now wants to set a world record on hosting the largest gathering of people in dinosaur costumes <laughs> post-COVID. So the current record, which I had no idea, is 252 people in Los Angeles in 2019. That's pretty recent. And that's not that big. That should be easy enough to beat. Right? Her Facebook group has over 6,000 members now. So it'd be really interesting if you got thousands of people participating. And Don said that people have already promised to come from all over Britain. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, one of the first things that people do post-COVID is like, let's all gather in a in dinosaur, dinosaur costume. costumes, yeah. <laughs> and party. <laughs> I guess. It's hard to party in those things. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> but you could dance. You could do like a, a flash mob dance together or something. Oh, that would be amazing. I hope that happens. That would take a lot of coordination. Yeah. But they've got time. Exactly. To plan it, yeah. A couple months to prep before they're allowed to do such a large gathering. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure they'll break the world record if they've already got people promising to come from all over. Yeah, it. I mean, it doesn't take too much doing to be 252. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. 
What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Micropachycephalosaurus, which was a request from Neil via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. So Micropachycephalosaurus was a ceratopsian that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Shandong Province, China. It was found in the Liyang Wang Formation. It's a ceratopsian, huh? Not a pachycephalosaurid? Yes, there was some confusion early on when it was first named. Hmm. So it looks kind of like Cetacosaurus. It's small and bipedal and herbivorous, and it's depicted in some art as having quills on the back or the tail. It's pretty small, so it probably had to avoid predators and you know, run away from them. It's estimated to be 19.6 inches to 23.6 inches, or 50 to 60 centimeters long. Wow, that's tiny. Yeah, it is. And the type and only species is Micropachycephalosaurus hongtuyanensis. And you can guess where the micro part of the name came from. Because it's tiny. Yes. <laughs> Although, what it makes for, what it lacks in size, it makes up for a long name. <laughs> so I am pretty sure that it is the longest dinosaur name. As I mentioned, there's 23 letters. A lot of places say that, but... The articles that I found that mentioned it being the longest name are a few years old, so it is hard to confirm that it still is. 23 letters is almost long enough to have every letter in the alphabet. Oh, that would be interesting if there was a dinosaur name with every letter of the Roman alphabet. The quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog asaurus. Sure. (laughs) Isn't that the sentence that has all the letters in it? No, well done, but as a dinosaur name, I don't know. 
So the genus name, Micropachycephalosaurus, means tiny, thick-headed lizard. And like Garrett was kind of surprised about, it was originally thought to be a pachycephalosaur, the ones with the dome heads. So that's why it's got that name. The fossil was found in 1972 during a study of a stratigraphic section in a cliff near Liang train station. And then it was named in 1978 by Zhu Ming Dong. The holotype included an incomplete skull, caudal vertebrae, part of the sacral girdle, and hind limb. A fragment of the left ilium, the upper hip bone, was also preserved. So originally it was described as having a, quote, parietal squamosal crest being thickly inflated but relatively flat and undomed, end quote. So, you know, relatively flat head, but the top looked inflated. And there was no conspicuous skull ornamentation. Interesting. I guess that does sound kind of pachycephalosaurish and not so ceratopsy-ish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, they also described the jaw, the mandible, as relatively high. So at the time that Micropachycephalosaurus was named, there were two types of pachycephalosaur skulls, dome-headed and flat-headed. And in the same paper that Dong named Micropachycephalosaurus, he also said that the differences in skulls were not due to sexual dimorphism as previously thought, but as phylogenetic characters. So somewhat unrelated, but I thought it was interesting because it was in the original paper about Micropachycephalosaurus. That's a little dicey, starting to talk about sexual dimorphism from one individual. <laughs> no, that's the point, is that it's not sexual dimorphism because they used to think that the differences in skulls in pachycephalosaurs were because of sexual dimorphism. Ah, but even phylogenetic characters isn't great because it could be ontogenetic, like growing up. Sure, but it seems like a, a step in a different direction. That's true, yeah. Paul Serino in 2000 considered Micropachycephalosaurus to be a nomum duvium. And then, in 2006, Sullivan and others did a taxonomic review of pachycephalosaurs, and they didn't think that Micropachycephalosaurus was a pachycephalosaur. So now we're getting into the part of it being a ceratopsian. Although at the time they didn't say that, they just said, we don't think it's a pachycephalosaur, but they didn't say what they thought it was. Mm. And then in 2009, Richard Butler and Chi Zhao said that Micropachycephalosaurus was valid as a genus, even though the bones found were fragmentary, but it was valid because of these prominent grooves on the surface of its vertebrae. And they said that Micropachycephalosaurus was an indeterminate seropoda after not finding anything that linked it with other pachycephalosaurs. At the time that they did this, the thickened skull roof was missing, so they couldn't confirm that it existed, the part that had been described in the original paper. They said that they could not support or refute the original pachycephalosaur classification because the skull roof was missing. And then in 2011, Butler and others did a cladistic analysis and found micropachycephalosaurus to be a basal ceratopsian. So it's only been considered to be a ceratopsian for what, a decade Gotcha. Out of the, what is it, 50-ish years that it's been around? It's yeah. been named only the last 10? Yep. That's really interesting. And it sounds like it's not the greatest find, so it could go to Nomon Dubium in the future, maybe. Maybe. Or maybe we'll find other fossils and that belong to the same genus and it'll tell us more. Yeah. And now, as promised... 
the five ways to de-extinct a species for our fun fact. Okay. And I've arranged them from the least likely to result in a de-extinct non-avian dinosaur to the most likely. How deep of an erictodromius burrow did you go for this? Well, I, you know, I had my day that I was going to spend preparing for the show, mm-hmm. and I spent about 80% of it working on this fun fact. Wow. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah, oops. But it's just such a deep rabbit hole, and it's not something I've researched that much about, so I had to go a little bit deep into a lot of the science to make sure, because I don't want to spread misinformation, and I want to be accurate, precise, mm-hmm. but also summarize it well. So, Yeah. And there are some really cool stories because it's there are lots of examples of de-extinction events happening, mm. which is really interesting. So I'm going to start with the first one, which is called iterative evolution, or maybe a better name for it is Elvis taxa. Okay. That's a reference to Elvis impersonators. And in terms of paleontology and phylogeny, it's really a very precise convergent evolution is what it is. Oh, Okay. So they look very similar, but they didn't, they evolved differently or they evolved at different times or different places or. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So the typical scenario is if you say a species goes extinct, for example, the environment changed and a niche disappeared. And then later that niche is available again. A new species evolves to fill that niche that looks nearly identical to the original species. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. So theoretically, this could happen with maybe a more distant ancestor, but usually, or at least the only cases we know of, come from like a pretty close relative. One famous example actually happened with a dinosaur, Mm -hmm. a flightless bird specifically, called the Aldabra rail. Rails are a a type of bird. Mm -hmm. And Aldabra is in the Seychelles a couple hundred miles north of Madagascar. And a detail that's kind of important is that it's a coral atoll, so it's a really low elevation island. So what happened is there was this flightless Aldabra rail, which presumably evolved from relatives in Madagascar because they look pretty similar. And they lived there until about 136,000 years ago. It's interesting when you do paleontology within the last million years, you can be so much more precise Mm -hmm. about these things because we just have so much better evidence and so many better fossils. But we can see that around 136,000 years ago, sea level rose and the island went completely underwater and the Aldabra rail went extinct because... There was nowhere to go. Exactly. And it couldn't fly. Yeah. (laughs) If you're a flightless bird and the island goes underwater, you're you're done. You know, there's nothing... Maybe you could raft off to somewhere else, but you're not going to make it back to that island. Mm -hmm. It's very, very unlikely. And then we see that, yeah, there's a period where there's no... You know, it's everything is underwater, so it's it's aquatic stuff, and there's no Aldabra rail anywhere to be seen. Then eventually, sea level dropped, and the Aldabra rail went through de-extinction. Okay, but it was something else that evolved to look like it. Yeah, because they they saw here's our chance. <laughs> Let's do this. Basically, <laughs> or just what might have happened. Like we talked about how birds end up on islands and become flightless. A lot of times, it's birds that can't fly well enough to regularly migrate and they Mm -hmm. sort of get blown there or something. And then they actually evolve flightlessness partly because it's better to be flightless than to have the ability to fly and try to fly. Mm -hmm. You're better off just like staying put. So that's one of the theories on why birds develop flightlessness on these remote islands. So what they think happened is a new population of white-throated rail arrived from Madagascar once the island was above water again. 
they landed there, colonized it, and then re-evolved flightlessness basically in the exact same pattern that the original Aldabra rail did. So you have potentially the exact same source population of birds in Madagascar on two separate occasions, making it over to Aldabra and then evolving flightlessness. So it's the two species of, or the two versions of the Aldabra rail are not the same species because they evolved at separate times and they're not directly connected, but they do appear to be connected to the same ancestor. Hmm. It's really interesting. I've never heard of this before. Yeah. So that is one way something can go de-extinct. And it's even more confusing because some people refer to the current rail on Aldabra as the Aldabra rail. Some people call it just a flightless subspecies of the white-throated rail to you know, make the distinction from the Aldabra rail that went extinct. But most people just call it the Aldabra rail or like the new Aldabra rail because <laughs> it's like the rail that's on Aldabra and they all look exactly the same, basically, mm -hmm. presumably act similar. I saw some pictures of them eating coconut crabs. So <laughs> they may be carnivorous. I'm not really sure exactly what their diet is. There's not a ton of information on it because Aldabra is a pretty remote island without a lot of people on it or maybe even any people on it. So yeah, pretty cool story. I should also point out Elvis taxa are different from Lazarus taxa. Lazarus taxa are taxa that are thought to be extinct, but actually were around the whole time and we so just tricky. didn't notice. Yeah, so it's it would be really hard to tell in the fossil record if something is an Elvis taxa or a Lazarus taxa. Mm -hmm. You'd have to know, you'd have to find out somehow that this one taxa had actually been around the whole time. Yeah, I think the presumption is that it's probably a Lazarus taxa unless you can definitively say that it went extinct and then re-evolved because mm -hmm. that's definitely the simpler answer rather than something having to evolve twice. So there might be cases of Elvis taxa in the fossil record that we just don't know about and we just assume it was the same one and then like they were around for a long time. But it's always possible that they went extinct in between and then something else re-evolved that looked like it. It's just in general, you'd presume it isn't an Elvis taxa unless you know, like in this case, it's a flightless bird on an island that was underwater for a few thousand years. You're like, okay, yeah, it went extinct. And then in terms of the reason I have this rated as the least likely to result in a non-avian dinosaur being de-extinct is that there's nothing close enough to non-avian dinosaurs for this to happen. You know, like it's not gonna be like some island opens up, a bird lands there and then turns into a T-Rex. Right. right. <laughs> there's maybe there's a lost island where the T-Rex never went extinct. <laughs> that would be a Lazarus taxa. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Right. And that would not be a de-extinction. You're right. I was just thinking of movies <laughs> I've watched recently. Yes. That is theoretically possible, although now with satellite imaging, probably not. The next least likely is called breeding back or back breeding. And this is basically selective breeding of animals to look or act like an extinct species. So usually this comes up in an attempt to try to recreate the ancestor of a domesticated species. One example is there are modern cattle, which were domesticated from aurochs, and then there's an attempt to recreate the auroch by selective breeding cattle that look, you know, like they still have horns because aurochs had big horns on them, and, you know, they had a certain body shape and all that kind of stuff, and we have drawings of them. I think they went extinct like four or 500 years ago, so we don't have any pictures of them, but we have a pretty good idea about what they looked like and maybe what they acted like. So you can find cattle that look and maybe act a little bit like them and try to breed them back into a, a more 
into a less domesticated version. Mm. Because as a side thing, domestication only counts as domestication if the animal genetically changes. Just taming something doesn't count as domesticating it. You have to actually like alter oh. the genes of an animal for it to fully be domesticated. Hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. That's actually what started me down this rabbit hole was learning about domestication <laughs> and why like zebras can't be domesticated, but horses can. Anyway, that's a whole other thing that I shouldn't get into. <laughs> so <laughs> breeding back isn't going to happen with dinosaurs because we don't have anything with dinosaur traits that we'd like to recreate. So like you can't find a chicken that looks like a dinosaur and breed it with other dinosaur-like chickens. It's just too far disconnected for that to really be a feasible option. But it's more likely than the Elvis taxa, mm -hmm. slightly. The next least likely that I have is cloning, which you might be able to argue is actually the least likely. It just depends. Right, because <laughs> we don't have the DNA. Yes, exactly. It kind of depends on how you define cloning. That's why I put it here. I should also say cloning is the only de-extinction which results in genetically identical species. So usually when people think about de-extincting things, cloning is like the number one. That's the one we should do. That's how you really make something go, you know, from extinct to not extinct. But in order to clone something, you need an intact nucleus of the extinct species and then what you do in most cases is you remove the nucleus, stick it into an ovum of a related species where you've removed the nucleus. So you kind of have an empty egg. And then you have the related species do the work of de-extinction. So you basically put it in their womb mm -hmm. and have them grow the thing. And you have to have a similar animal, obviously, to grow that. So far, mostly it's been done on mammals. It's partly because it's easier to do. So you can remove the ovum, you can change the nucleus, and then you can pop it into a uterus and it might... <laughs> pop it into a uterus, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and it might grow. It's actually not quite that simple. Apparently what happens is you, like when somebody dies and you have to use the shock paddles on them to bring them back to life, you have to do something kind of similar when it comes to cloning. So when you take the nucleus out of an ovum, it kills the egg. And then you have to give it like electrical stimulation to keep it alive for a little while in a Petri dish and then stick it in, which is partly why it works better in mammals because you can do that into a uterus, but you can't really do that with an egg in a chicken because it the egg in a chicken moves down, moves down the oviduct and it develops this hard shell on it. And then there's a yolk that interacts with it. It's just way more complicated. So no bird has ever been cloned. Hmm. Ever. <laughs> There's a couple animals that have been like quote unquote cloned, but really what they are is they're just twins. It's really more the process is sometimes called twinning rather than cloning, mm -hmm. where you take an embryo and then you split that embryo, basically you use the embryonic material to make multiple individuals. But really for cloning, when it comes to de-extinction, what we're talking about is using a material from an extinct animal and popping it into a non-extinct animal. And we don't know even how to do that for a bird, let alone for a dinosaur. And it's never really been successfully done for de-extinction. There's one animal that was very briefly de-extinct through cloning called the Pyrenean ibex. It was cloned in 2003 from, you know, they had a nucleus that was preserved and they inserted it into a similar ovum and had another animal give birth to it. But unfortunately, it died in a few minutes because it had defects in its lungs. Oh. So that's the only attempt that's really ever seriously been done to clone, to de-extinct an animal through cloning. So 
Yeah, and it's it's almost certainly not going to happen with a non-avian dinosaur because we definitely don't have an intact nucleus. It's likely only possible to clone from cryopreserved material, which means post-1950. Mm. Even if it's frozen in ice, it's probably not in good enough shape to get a nucleus out of it, especially if it's more than like a couple decades old. So woolly mammoths probably out of the question. Yeah, yeah, even woolly mammoths you can't do. It's literally like... It needs to be really seriously preserved because it needs to basically be a living nucleus that you're working with in order to clone something. But we do have a new tool that could work on woolly mammoths. That's the next one. Mm -hmm. So it's slightly more likely because it's almost like how long ago you have to go. So like dinosaurs, not around in 1950, but, you know, woolly mammoths, if it would work on a woolly mammoth, it's closer to dinosaurs. Anyway, there's genome editing. This is the second most likely to work, specifically using CRISPR-Cas9. A lot of people have heard about this system. It borrows the mechanism of a bacteria's immune system. That's how CRISPR-Cas9 works. Basically, bacteria can incorporate viral DNA into their own DNA to create immunity. That's sort of how a bacteria's immune system works. Mm -hmm. It's pretty slick. But some clever scientists figured out that we can use those same chemicals to change DNA in other ways. Basically, you just take that same molecule and then you can modify it a little bit and then you can stick stuff into other DNA. Oh. It's really slick, pretty fancy. In the case of de-extinction, what we'd be doing is incorporating genes that make an animal unique, the extinct animal is unique, into an extant relative's DNA. So for example, if you imagine taking an elephant and if you have genes to make more hair and bigger horns that you get from some mammoth DNA, you could stick those genes in and then you could end up with something mammoth-like. Hmm. Although technically it would be more of a chimera because it's an elephant that you've modified to be like a woolly mammoth, you could do it. The big benefit here is it allows the use of degraded DNA and you'd, you don't even need intact DNA, let alone an intact nucleus since all you need to do is pull out some of the genes. Okay, so things that lived a lot longer ago. Yes, so this, I think, would expand your range of what you could de-extinct to more like thousands of years if they're frozen, maybe still only 100 or 200 years if they're not frozen, though. So it's basically the inverse technique described in Jurassic Park. In Jurassic Park, they describe they're filling in gaps of the ancient DNA with bird, lizard, and frog DNA, or just for frog DNA in the movie. But with CRISPR-Cas9, instead what you're doing is you're starting with a full DNA molecule of an existing species, and then you're replacing pieces of it with potentially dinosaur fragments. Hmm. So that would be basically, yeah, the inverse of Jurassic Park, but is kind of close. It's pretty cool how close Michael Crichton was on that. He also got around the issue with cloning, where I was talking about how the ovum it develops this hard shell and has so it would be difficult to use cloning on it. Because in the book, he talks about how he invented this novel plastic egg substitute. <laughs> so it's sort of like an artificial womb, and then you don't have to deal with all that complicated business of getting it back into a, a bird to lay the egg and all that. Mm -hmm. It's pretty clever. Unfortunately for de-extincting non-avian dinosaurs, it's very unlikely that any DNA has survived. Even if it has survived, it's not going to be at the point where we could get enough fragments of DNA to make this work. And as an example of why that's the case, there's an attempt being made to de-extinct the passenger pigeon, which is technically a dinosaur. Right, but an avian one. <laughs> yes. 
it was ubiquitous in North American forests until about 150 years ago. Mm. There are these quotes about them like blacking out the sky. There were so many of them flying. Wow. And things. Yeah, they helped this certain oak grow. So the reason they want to de-extinct it is because it could help forests recover and things of that nature. But even at 150 years old or less in some of the cases of the DNA fragments they have, the DNA is really degraded and requires lots of overlapping samples to figure out the genome. Mm. And that's only 150 years old. Mm -hmm. So if you start talking about thousands or millions of years old, it's going to be very, very difficult, maybe theoretically possible to get enough DNA to figure out a chromosome or something. Maybe, maybe eventually you start with the passenger pigeon and work your way through. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. It's It still seems really unlikely that this way is going to get us to a truly de-extinct dinosaur, though, by, by, by finding the real genes in fossils. But in the passenger pigeon case, just in case you're curious, you start with the closest relative, which is the band-tailed pigeon, and then you add the key passenger pigeon genes, which requires figuring out basically the entire genome of both the passenger pigeon and the band-tailed pigeon, seeing the differences, which genes are important, and then moving them over. So you could come up with something that's very similar to a passenger pigeon. And then they also have to figure out how to make this work with the laying of an egg. The way they're going to try to do it is basically messing with the reproductive system of rock pigeons and passenger pigeons. So they make like a chimera and then they'll lay eggs and they got a whole system figured out. But their goal is to release test flocks of passenger pigeons between 2030 and 2040. Hmm. So this, this is a thing that people are trying to do, de-extinct the passenger pigeon. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. That is. And 2030 is not that far away. It is not. But there is a, a common trope in very far off science to say it's going to happen in 10 to 15 years. Right. And then it's just always 10 to 15 years away. So we'll see if it stays 2030 to 2040 or if it, in 10 years it's 2040 to 2050 and so on. Then the most likely way, we've talked about this one before, is by activating and inactivating genes. Chickenosaurus. Exactly. It's similar to breeding back. But instead of finding animals that look like the ancestors, you directly modify the genes that get expressed in the animal so that it looks more like its ancestor. This is possible because animals often have unexpressed genes of their ancestors. So then you can use different chemicals or different tricks to activate those genes and deactivate other genes. Like you said, chickenosaurus is the best example. Jack Horner likes to talk about it. Mm -hmm. We've been able to breed a chicken with a snout by messing with its genes. We've added teeth, and I think they've adjusted the feet. I don't think they've yet come up with a way to grow a tail instead of just the little piga style that it has. At least last time we looked into it, which it's been a while. I tried again. I didn't see anything new. And then the other thing that you need is you want you would probably want to make it have more hand-like hands and arm-like arms than wings. I remember reading something about the sternum as well. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And maybe making gastralia or something instead of a sternum. So we're still kind of far off on that. But technically, you know, we just get more and more de-extinct-ish because we could make a chickenosaurus now that has a snout and teeth, but it, would, it wouldn't be as close to a de-extinct dinosaur as a lot of people would like. And you're never going to get 100% of the way there because... We don't know. We don't have the original DNA to work with, so we don't know what exactly was expressed in these original animals. 
On top of that, it's probably only going to work with theropods. There's no sauropod or ornithischian ancestors around today, unfortunately for us and our favorite dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. Unless, of course, those dinosaurs were expressing genes from an ancestor, and then it just so happens that they have that trait. That would be interesting. <laughs> yeah. But it is the only de-extinction technique that we currently have, which is likely to work for non-avian dinosaurs, and also probably the farthest result from the actual <laughs> extinct animal, unfortunately. It would just look like it. Yeah, potentially. I'm not even sure how much we can make it look like it, because that hasn't been proven yet, mm -hmm. but I'd like to... I'd like to see it. I think it'd be cool. Depends. Depends on the dinosaur. Yeah. One benefit to this one is that you activate and deactivate them on an individual basis. It doesn't go into the gene line. So they're not going to like run rampant and have a bunch of offspring that look like this because it's like you're basically causing intentional birth defects in a way to happen in these animals. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about that. <laughs> So, yeah, it's very much a one-off situation, so it's not going to become like an invasive species because if a chickenosaurus escapes and has babies with another chicken, it's just going to be a normal chicken. Interesting. If they do it the way that they've done it in the past. I guess they could change their methodology, though. Yeah, who knows? 15 years from now. <laughs> That's true. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us or follow us in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And join our community at patreon.com slash I know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.